Greetings and welcome to Saturday Night's Alright for Podcasting with me, George Matlock, for Radio Elton John and Elton John World. Tonight we have a British record producer flying the flag and indeed an audio engineer to boot. And he's been at it for as long as I've been alive. He has worked with, among others, Led Zeppelin, Oasis, Twisted Sister, Bill Wyman, Kiki D. George Harrison, Robbie Williams, Wishbone Ash, Mark Owen, Paul Weller, Cliff Richard, The Firm, Jimmy Page, Barry White, and Chris Rea, of course. Oh, yeah, and let's not forget Elton John. In 2014, he co-produced two tracks for the Irish rock band Nine Lies, And he's even worked with Bad Company. But tonight, he's going to be Great Company, ladies and gentlemen. Orbiting our solar system is... Stuart Epps. Welcome, welcome, Stuart Epps. Great to have you on the programme. How are you, sir? I'm very good, thanks. I'm here. Wonderful. It's all good. <laughs> OK. I know it's uh, the hot summer's on and you're in a very heated space, so we'll keep this as short as possible. We've got a lot to get through. Um, great to have you on the programme. And, Stuart, let's start with, uh, after that long phone list of names I've g- just uh, given you, um, it's, uh, it's great to have you on the show. L- last time I think we in- interviewed you would have been around about 2018, and that was when I think you were about to launch an audio book of your first three years in music, that's 1967 to 70, heavily influenced by Elton back then, of course. Um, when can we hope to see the second instalment of your great story? Well, I don't know about that, I'll be honest. Um, I mean, it wasn't, it seemed like an easy project at the time, and it wasn't as easy as I thought it was going to be. Nothing's uh, quite ever that easy and uh, Mm -hmm. you know getting the dates right but it was very very you know I enjoy doing it I'm obviously very pleased that people like it and people uh, either listen to it or read it because it's on my website Um, you know I've got a lot of stories to tell they're not all about Elton as well they're all about the other artists I've worked with so there's every possibility that if I did something again it might include you know like some of the artists you were talking about like Led Zeppelin, like Chris Rear, like Bill Wyman. Amazing. Um, you I know, mean, the, the the important time for me with Elton was obviously in those early, and, and actually that, that time, that early time, sort of gets more important as we get further away from it, in a way. You know, you've mm. got all these 50-year anniversaries coming up, or have come up with, the, mm. you know, Tumbleweed, the first Elton album, you know, Yellow Brick Road, they're all coming up to their 50th anniversary. So they become even more important, really, as they get uh, further into history. Indeed. Um, Now, your career started off with Elton at Dick James Music. Uh, While you were there, was there anyone else you uh, produced? 
Well, I didn't start off as a producer. I started mm. off as an office boy as a runner. And, um, you know, production came quite a few years later because I was 15 years old. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so there was, I was a runner. I was a, a disc cutter for a year. I was assistant engineer to Clive Franks in the studio. Mm -hmm. And then I always had my eye on A&R and plugging. So then uh, eventually I, I did plug in, but then I got to work with Steve Brown, who, as uh, Elton fans will know, pretty much was the pivotal person in Elton's career. In fact, I was there when Elton, when we first played Elton's music to Steve Brown. That was in my cutting room, and I, I wow. talk, I've talked about that. You know, he didn't, he wasn't the key, he wasn't very keen to be honest. He didn't think it was very good music at all, <laughs> and that, and that, and that was the album that Elton made before Empty Sky, not Empty mm. Sky. Because mm -hmm. as, as also Elton fans will know, Steve Brown produced Empty Sky and changed Elton's uh, career quite considerably, you know. Yep. So, yep. Uh, but my first production would have been when I was getting on a bit, uh, I was probably aged about 17, and I got to work with Birds of a Feather who was signed to uh, page one that was to do with um, Dick James music. And actually, we did a lot of Elton songs, and Elton played on that album. Mm. And that's that's when I started production, really. And uh, but then I I also toured with Elton and got into all sorts of other areas. And it was a it was a buzzing, exciting time when I was involved in all aspects of uh, you know music, and particularly DJM, and then Rocket, and and Elton's career was always. You know, I was always involved in that in those early days. Now, tell us a bit about that Birds of a Feather. I, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people don't know that there's an Elton connection there. So that, what, what year was that? Did you say 1971, was it? It's a good question. I, I actually couldn't tell. It might be 70. But what it was, was they were signed, there were two girls and they were signed to uh, Page One, which was uh, mm -hmm. a subsidiary of DJM, of yep. Dick James. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, yeah, I was asked to produce them, and I, I, I said, yes, that would be great. And um, because Elton was a struggling songwriter, at the time, well, he wasn't mm. struggling, but I just thought, I must have just thought it would be great to do some of those Elton songs with two girls. So we did Take Me to the Pilot, we did Border Song, uh, I can't remember the others, but also Caleb Quay, mm -hmm. who obviously you know is Elton's guitarist, he... Um, he did the arrangements on quite a few of the tracks, and uh, and Elton played on them. Yeah, and we had a great time. We did it at Trident Studios. Yep. You know, it was a it was a quite a bit of budget um, went into it. I'll be honest. What I mainly remember is that I was desperate to sit in the producer's chair at Trident <laughs> Studios, mm -hmm. where I'd seen Gus sit. Mm. And when I first arrived, Steve Brown was sitting in that chair, and I thought, that's all I cared about. I thought, if he doesn't get out of that chair, I'm going to go mad, because <laughs> that is so important to me. And um, But eventually, I got to sit in the chair, and we made the album. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a great album, really. I, I listened, I've heard it recently, and that's uh, not bad, you know. I guess it was. it's kind of all right, but, but that's... Um, yeah, it was early days for me as producer, really. And then, I mean, after that, you know, I went on tour with Elton uh, and then I started working more in the management side and I didn't get back into producing 
properly until Gus built the mill and I started working uh, working there again and then with Jimmy Page. And, uh, and what, what year would that have been? Well, we started the mill, we started building the mill in 1974. Mm. It wasn't finished till 1976. But probably, and then Jimmy, uh, Gus had the had the mill for five years um, and I and I was really his assistant engineer then well I was his, I was engineer I didn't really start producing properly until he actually sold the mill to Jimmy Page in 1980 and then I was away really doing um, you know projects for Atlantic which were Twisted Sister Vandenberg mm -hmm. and, uh, and then co-producing with Elton people that came into the mill I really got more into producing then. Up until then, I suppose it was more just engineering. I would say. How did you come to work with uh, uh, Barry White? That's a quite a luminary as well. Oh well, Barry White. Yes, well that happened because of the Brunei. That came via Steve Brown because Elton uh, had already been there, I think. But he was. Uh, they were doing these crazy concerts uh, in Brunei. Mm -hmm. and uh, Elton was going to be performing there and then via doing this uh, recording this concert with Elton in Brunei I then got to meet his name's Rafi Manukian who was working for the uh, Sultan of Brunei's Sultan of Brunei's brother's son and, um, and that's how I got to meet him and then he was getting married. It is a crazy. It's a great connection. Uh, connect. It's a great. It's a crazy connection. Yeah. <laughs> but he he was getting married, and uh, he was he was getting married in in um, Beirut actually. As you do. <laughs> but the guys are multi-millionaires, so instead of having a local band, he he wanted Barry White to play at his wedding. Right. So he then oh. employed me because we got on rather well. So he employed me to fly to Beirut in his private jets, you know, the whole, uh, mm -hmm. it was a bit of an entourage. Right. In, in fact, I don't think Elton was there thinking about it. Yeah, thinking about it, Elton wasn't there, but there was a lot of other people there. Yeah. There were, there were princes and uh, all sorts. But anyway, so I was recording Barry White and the orchestra live, and that was a, that was a thrill, actually. Yeah, absolutely. It was great. Meeting Amazing. him and working with him, yeah. I'm glad I asked you that question. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Barry White anyway. Um, ah, right. So, so yeah. this is this definitely resonates, and that's why I selected yeah. that. I thought I would better ask about this yeah. particular. I mean, a lot of the people you worked with, I, I've got to admit, I love, truly love. I mean, you've got Chris Greer yeah. in there, for example, and others. Yeah, it's a cra crazy collection. It's a, but it's a, it's it's an eclectic collection. I think it's a lovely it collection. Is. I mean, you've got some it seriously big names. I mean, Jimmy Page hmm. and Led Zeppelin. I mean, the list goes on. But when I saw Barry, I said, I'm going to have to ask you about that. And I'm so yeah, glad no I problem. did. I'm so yeah. glad I did. Well, look, lovely story. Um, now, just for the benefit of listeners who are who are coming to us, uh, this is we don't do any funny edits with these these programs. This is literally like a radio, a live radio show to everybody, right? So at the moment, you can hear a bit of a background noise coming from. Uh, from Stuart's side, um, is that your fan that's on, or something? I can hear no, something buzzing. Absolutely not. Ah, right. No, okay. There's something else. Okay, not to worry. But it, these things happen. Okay. Um, so let, let's move on then. Um, one thing I want to also ask you: You, you mentioned uh, our, our dear friend Clive Franks, um, who most Elton John fans will will instantly recognise as well. He once um, was interviewed by me. And he, 
said his real name was Reg Presley. I thought that was very funny, and so did Davy Johnson, who cracked up laughing. But um, the great story about Clive, uh, he once told me that he uh, dressed up as a crocodile and um, played the Farfisa, I think it was, uh, organ mm -hmm. for Crocodile Rock. Have you, done any, have you done anything like that yourself? Did you... You've done all the management, you've done the sound engineering, etc. Have you ever performed in Elton's band? Uh, well, what I did used to do is when we were touring, um, yeah. on one tour I did with Elton, when I was looking after him, actually, we had Legs Larry Smith oh, yeah. on the tour, who yeah. used to, uh, who, who was mainly there to tap dance during yeah. I Think I'm Gonna Kill Myself, yep. Yep. As, he, as he did on the record. <laughs> Yep. But yeah, it's yeah. funny you should ask me that because no one has ever asked me this ever in my life. So it's a very good opportunity to tell you the story. And the story is that basically because Larry was on the tour, Elton wanted to do other things with him. He wanted to introduce him into the uh, set. Mm. So for some strange reason, he did this skit, I suppose you'd call it, mm -hmm. where Legs Larry would come on dressed in a sort of a a Mac, and Elton would dress up in a Mac, you know, like a, you know, like a private detective. I don't know right. what that had to do with it. So this is the, anyway, the Macintosh, the raincoat, right? Okay. Yeah, raincoats. That's it. Yeah, they yeah. come on and they do singing in the rain. <laughs> okay. And the and the tour manager Marv Tobolsky used to be dressed up in a in a sort of a dinner jacket, and he'd be miming in the piano. Mm -hmm. And then Maxine Torpin, who was Bernie's wife, mm -hmm. no one knows this unless they were there, used to come on dressed up in all this glitter outfit and she used to sprinkle glitter over everyone, right? <laughs> okay. So what I used to do then, because they also used to use these magic wands that they had in their Macs that they'd pull out and then press a button and they'd explode over everyone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a pretty mad thing. Anyway, one night or one day, yeah, just before the gig, uh, Elton suddenly goes, "What well, we're going to, you know, Maxine's not here. Who's going to do the glitter? So they said, uh, Stuart or Schwepp, you know, is my nickname, mm. said, you'll have to do it. And I said, I'm not, I'm not doing that. You must be mad. They said, well, you're doing it. Sorry. I said, well, look, I'll do it if I can dress up, if I can wear something where I don't look like me. So they said, well, we don't really care. Just go and do it. Anyway, I went into Larry's dressing room and he had all this sort of stage gear and God knows what. So I sort of dressed up in, I don't know what, hula hula skirt or something. I don't know. And then I found a mask. So I put the mask on. And sure enough, I went on stage and did the glitter while they're doing this um, singing in the rain. Good God. And if anyone's got photos of that, I'd really like to see it. So, 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 how many? How often was this routine done? I mean, how many people do you think have seen it? How many witnesses? Every night. <laughs> every night. Thousands upon thousands. Well, if anyone... I probably did it every night for a couple of weeks, you know. Ladies and gentlemen, if there's anyone out there listening to this particular edition of the program, and you were That's there, right, yeah. get in touch. The email address you know is radio at eltonjohn.world. Don't forget it. Be in touch. We'd love to hear from you, wouldn't we, Stuart? I mean, George, George, one thing that did happen is uh, I used to stand on the side of the stage mm -hmm. and I used to load, I used to have to load these magic wands with gunpowder, actually, because <laughs> they used to shoot, they used to shoot out a lighted, a lit 
uh, tissue paper into the air. You know, it's one of these magic tricks things. Yeah. Um, and one, I always remember this. I was standing on the stage. I put the, I put the magic wand into Elton's raincoat, and for some stupid, I don't know why, he put his hand in his pocket, and he only sets it off in his pocket. <laughs> and and as I'm standing there, Elton's whole pocket is red with flames. Oh my god. And I start, I start whacking him, and he probably—I don't know whether he was getting excited or whether he thought, <laughs> he thought, "What's going on?" But I was trying to stop him from bursting into flames. Well, of course, know. blimey, that was a close shave. <laughs> it was, but but we had a lot of fun. Legs, Larry Smith's crazy bless, guy, bless crazy him, guy, bless him, no, yeah, absolutely bless great, him, yeah. great, great artist. No, great, great yeah. artist. What an um, amazing story. Is there yeah, any more to that? <laughs> well, that'll do. I mean. When they went to L- uh, L.A., no, well, I think when they went to, um, I think they did this show at the Royal Variety Performance. Mm-hmm. They also did it in Los Angeles. And uh, all right, so the other thing is that Larry, obviously, when he went on stage, he wasn't dressed in uh, normal gear. And for some peculiar reason, only known to himself, he used to wear what he called the wedding outfit. So basically, he used to wear a wedding dress. Mm-hmm. right a woman's wedding dress and he'd wear a veil and on top of the veil i don't even know why again he used to put a wedding couple of the type that you get on a on a wedding cake ah yes indeed the little couple right yeah the figurines right yeah. so so what would happen is every night he'd do the gig and because he'd be dancing around when he's doing the tap dancing the wedding couple would always fall off and someone would pinch them in the audience. Mm-hmm. So part of my part of my job every day was to go off, buy loads of glitter, uh, buy a mask that I would be wearing that evening, mm-hmm. and then also try and find a wedding couple. And uh, and I always remember when we were in the south. I don't know whether it was New Orleans or where we were. I actually managed to find. Well, it wasn't difficult. I found a black couple instead of a white couple and I thought well that will go down well mm. now the the things I had to do the things you had to do yeah and the things you now admit I mean it's just great mm. love it and legs Larry mm. Smith was this routine just in the US or did this ever come to Europe uh, that's a good question I think it was only in America right I right. think it was only in America I would love yeah. to see video footage of that um, there must be something Ooh. and he did yeah and he definitely did because I didn't go with I stayed in America but I'm sure they flew over and did the um, Royal Variety performance that year, whatever year that was. And I think Larry would have maybe done that as well. So there must be uh, BBC footage of that, I would have thought. Okay. We like our little rockets uh, from time to time here on the programme. Yikes. Yes, we we, we do that when there's a little change in the mood. In fact, what we're going to do now is we're going to go straight to a track. So stay with us. And later, let's have a little chat about this number. That's an amazing track indeed. That's Act of War. And uh, in fact, please excuse all the authentic gunfire, ladies and gentlemen, that you would have heard in that. Um, I know you're probably thinking that we've just been invaded by the Rod Stewart fan club. 
actually, though, um, it's another Stuart's fan club uh, who uh, is holding me to ransom here in the studio, that of one Stuart Epps, our guest of honour tonight on Radio Elton John. Welcome back. It must bring back a lot hey. of memories, that track, and particularly Millie Jackson. Yeah, absolutely. I've forgotten all about that, as probably most people have, and... Uh sounded great you know even in mono it sounded absolutely brilliant that was <laughs> that were they were amazing tracks amazing tracks indeed now millie jackson just she <laughs> simply arrested that song from the moment she started to sing and that cascading sound as she took over it's like oh my god you don't want to come foul of this woman um what was she like to work with she sounds quite a if i put it um, euphemistically quite a substantial lady yeah, she was pretty mad. I mean, I I, asked, I absolutely don't remember. I mean, um, <laughs> she's pretty pretty feisty, I guess. Yeah, but yeah. you know, can't be as feisty as Elton. No, they were a great team. I don't know, I, you know, I don't know how they got to meet or how they knew each other, but uh, you know, she just turned up and away we went. Fantastic. Now, I know that our mutual friend, the late Gus Dudgeon, produced this super track, Act of War. We actually heard the extended uh, remix version there, of course. Um, now, the duet of Elton and Millie Jackson, but I seem to remember that you were credited on the extended remix of that as engineer. What do mm. you remember of that crazy and super track recording of that version? And, and I guess, Millie, as you said already, a bit of an armful. Yeah, well, no, I didn't. Uh, it was a remix. So in those mm. days, which doesn't actually, it, it is a long time ago, but every time you did a, anything that was like a dance track, everyone wanted a 12-inch version. Yeah. You know, so, you know, and, and actually the, the more the merrier. So Gus or someone would have said, Stuart, you know, you do one. So I just went in the studio and, you know, lengthened the drums and put some delays on I can hear that's probably the one I did the one that you just played because mm -hmm. I always used to love delays and echoes and everything else so yeah I, and no one else was involved it was just me remixing basically so so was that what you basically brought to this extended remix echoes and delays echoes <laughs> delays editing extending you know whatever I, there might have been sheep noises in it effects I don't know all right. sorts of things it, yeah it's... <laughs> Extend extensions, uh, delays, echoes. It sounds to me like you, you've just taken over British Railways, actually. But uh, isn't Could that what been, they yeah. do? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, that was my favourite thing. And even when I was at DJM, mm. I used to when I was in the cutting room, I used to do crazy things with uh, repeats and delays and just effects because I I love recording and I like you know making up sounds. So yeah, yeah, just Let's... follows on from there, really. Let's stay with those crazy moments. And perhaps just to ask you um, uh, other, about your name. Now, you, you mentioned it earlier on, what, what is your, your nickname? Now, I just want to ask you this. This is a great nickname you've got, but it's akin to a fizzy beverage. How did mm -hmm. you get your nickname? Well, it's, uh, it's an amalgam or amalgamated version of Stuart Epps, I suppose. And uh, we're not sure whether it was Caleb or Clive. Clive says it was him. Caleb says it was him. One way or another, someone must have called me Schwepp, and it stuck. And, um, mm. you know, I suppose it, when these things happen, because in those days, actually, it, many people had nicknames. Mm. You know, we were talking about Flop earlier. Mm -hmm. and, and there's some people, especially roadies, 
that they had nicknames and you didn't even know what the I never knew what Flop's real name was it was Philip but I didn't know that I remember one of Hookfoot's roadies was called Crink mm -hmm. and you never actually knew what their real name was so although I it sort of creeps up on you that everyone's calling you by this nickname mm. I mean the fact that they're calling you anything at all in those days was quite nice the only time when it did become uh, a little bit serious is when um, we were at the mill, this is years later in the uh, in the mid 70s and Gus, you know, someone, maybe someone quite important would come to the studio, come to the mill and Gus would say, oh, and this is Schwepp. And they sort of look at me and I could <laughs> see them thinking, what the hell is that? You know, what? And they're probably thinking, I wonder why he's called that. You know, it's not even Mr. Schwepp, you know, it's just Schwepp. Yeah. And, so no, and, no I, um, S, and no S on the end. It was just Schwepp, not Schwepp. Yeah, Schwepp. Right. Sometimes I was the Schwepp. Right. Which I which actually elevated it a little bit. But um, at another time when um, I I think it was John Reed, you know, Elton's manager, mm, mm. he actually thought that was my surname. <laughs> he thought I was called Stuart Schwepp. So uh, so but he had you to do a contract with the word Schwepp. He said, "How do you yeah, spell you know, that?" <laughs> Do you know what? In a way, it was it was a, a little bit similar to, uh, and not many people will know this, but you know, well, most Elton fans know that Elton John isn't his real name. Mm. His real name was Reg, Reginald Kenneth Dwight. So in all those early years, he was Reg. Mm. And that's what we called him, and that's what his mum called him, mm. obviously. But he changed his name to Elton Hercules John. And uh, and what would happen with with him is that uh, you know he'd get introduced to people or people would get to meet him, and and they'd say, well, this is Elton, you know, this is Elton John. How do you do? And then after a while, they'd go, anyway, Reg. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, and he got he he got, he got really annoyed uh, with yeah, that. Yeah, he got upset you know? about that. Yeah, because people would sort of suddenly, when they think they're his friend, they think they can suddenly call him Reg. You know. So one day he said, right, from now on, I am Elton John. I'm actually Elton Hercules John. Yeah. And he changed his name because I was involved in that. He changed his name in my deed poll. That's right. And, uh, and even his mum, which was a big thing, really, she, he said, I'm no longer your, your son called Reg. I'm your son called Elton. And... Uh, but that's not really to do with Schwepp, I don't know. No, it's, I mean, not, I, it's, it's for a good link. I mean, 1972, that deed poll, what's interesting is, of course, he'd yes. been cutting albums for a, for about four years at that point. I mean, he'd already had Empty Sky, yeah, Tumbleweed course, Connection yeah. and all the rest, you know. Yeah. Incredible. I mean, he, he wanted to become Elton John. I must admit, I didn't really want to become Schwepp. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually <laughs> wanted to get back to Stuart Epps. Yeah. Well, I always call point. you Stuart. You notice I'm always very polite. I always call you Stuart. You know that. I've never called if, you Schwepp. If uh, Elton was to call me now, because he's been listening to this, he'd say, what the hell are you doing, Schwepp? <laughs> <laughs> so he used you the know. name as well. Okay, so Gus as well, but uh, so did Elton. Very, very good. Mm. I recall uh, many years ago the, the lovely man, Long John Baldry, telling me a story saying that back in uh, 1968, um, he was flying back from Edinburgh to London on one of those British Midland flights, uh, about an hour in the flight, and um, the, the supporting act, of course, with for, in those days, with the Hoochie Coochie Men and, and Blue Solidy, which of course featured Elton on keyboards. 
Yeah. And uh, Elton came up to him in in uh, in the in the aisle of the the plane and said, uh, leaned over to his chair and he said, uh, John, from today I want you to call me Elton John. Oh. And quite right. John too. looked at him and he said, yeah. Yes, whatever you you know. In his gravelly voice, he said, Yes. Oh yeah. Whatever you say, Reg. And, ah. and he was so annoyed with him. Elton was so yeah. annoyed with him. Uh, but as you say, he, he's been very touchy about that. And I think ever since, you know, he's, as you say, he, he, he doesn't want to be called Reg. He wants to be called Elton. No. Yeah. Who Fair would? Fair enough. Who would? Who really would ever want to be called Reg anyway? Well, Reg Presley, I suppose. Reg Presley. I was going to say somebody we mentioned earlier in the programme, indeed. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think Reg Presley might, might. He's made a bit of money using that name. I don't think he'd really that's want to change right. it now. I mean, it'd be a bit, yeah, bit, bit a naff to do it at this point in his career. Anyway, um, so good stuff. Now, um, Let's let's change the mood ever so slightly. One of the great things about this program is that, a, apart from you know working with Elton, this show also excels in giving our guests the chance to update us on what they are doing right now. I mean, not literally right now, because it sounds like you're shifting boxes, but I'm sure you're just putting your elbow next to your PC. Anyway, I know that you launched your record label. Epps Records in 2021 and you've been uh, getting us all excited with a number of songs that you've chosen for tonight's programme um, from promising young artists. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But first, let's hear one of those tracks. This is from Damien West. I love it as well. That's Damien West and a song called I Love It. Uh, originally from Voyager, is it not, Stuart? Yeah, it was um, Paul French and Paul Hirsch who wrote the song. Mm. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah, it was originally on an album that Gus Dudgeon produced that I engineered at the mill. Fantastic. Great track and a very promising artist there. Tell us a bit about Damien. This is one of the artists that you're managing, isn't, isn't that right, or working with? Yeah, I don't actually manage him, but uh, we recorded this album over the last few years, actually, uh, called Catabasis. Mm -hmm. And uh, we recorded it in this room where I am now in my studio. And he's a great chap, you know, we've been working together, as I say, quite a few years. There's plenty, you know, there's eight tracks on the album. This is just one of them. And he's a great guy, a great singer, plays Les Paul guitars. And it's been a great project. And it's just released almost today actually oh right well that's great to know excellent so yeah. we can rush out and buy this so is it a download yeah. or as a cd or how do yeah we as a it? download it's available on itunes and amazon and spotify and all over the place spotify all over the place excellent now damien is a, a british artist what what part of the country does he does, does he come from well not far from here really oh he's a local uh, lad. okay yeah sort of beaconsfield area chesham yeah, he's not far away at all. Excellent, fantastic. Well, absolutely yeah. a brilliant, brilliant track to uh, to get us on our way with uh, what you're doing. And, and this is released by, is it by uh, Epps Records? 
Absolutely, yes. Fantastic. So that's the label, ladies and gentlemen. Look out for it. And that was Damien West you heard there with I Love It. And I have to say, I really do. So the guitar licks we heard on that, that was him playing the guitar? It's, uh, it's actually, it's all Damien. Uh, the, the fascinating thing is that the drummer is um, John Martyr, who was the drummer in Voyager, who yeah. I still work with. Right. And uh, the keyboard is also Paul Hirsch, who was the keyboard player in, in Voyager. So they, they both got together to, to appear on this. Um, it's just a shame that, that Gus isn't around to hear that because I'm sure, I'm sure he'd like it. We spent, we spent a, you know, a couple of years working with Voyager and they had a big hit called Halfway Hotel, if anyone remembers that. I do. It's a great track. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. They're well, a great band. Absolutely. Uh, well, give them our, my best when you next see yes. them. Uh, fantastic. We'll do. Okay, um, the next track we're going to play now. Now, this is one that's uh, going to be of interest definitely to Elton John fans, and I need to give no introduction. This is Liam Price. with a song that you just have to play to the end. It doesn't matter how you want to tone it down and start talking over it like a polished DJ. You just can't. You've got to play the whole damn song. That's how it works. That, of course, <laughs> is a contemporary take on a very Elton classic. Uh, don't let the sun go down on me. I think every fan of Elton would have instantly recognised that. Now, tell us about Liam. How did you come to work with him? And, uh, and, and tell us a bit about the, the instrumentation on that, because that was pretty good. Well, that's good to know. I mean, it was great to hear it. Thanks, George. But uh, Liam, uh, I've worked with for a couple of years now. It was basically, you know, people get in touch with me and his mother got in touch with me, Donna, who uh, will be listening to this, I'm sure. And she just sent me a couple of tracks of her son, who was probably about 15 at the time. Mm -hmm. And actually, I didn't know that anyway. I said, well, you know, send me a couple of tracks from your son. And I played them and I was instantly taken with this guy's voice. I just thought, wow, that is a really great voice. Well done. It turns Donna. out that... Yeah. Yeah, well done, Donna. But it turns out that he was runner-up on The Voice. Ah. You know, the very, right. very, very well-known uh, TV program. Yep. Uh, where he sang um, Lean On Me was the one mm. that he sang. Mm. And uh, I'm following listening to actually this track that she played me was a song that he not only sang, but he also wrote himself, uh, which uh, and I really like the song Disappear, it was called. And, uh, and then I saw him doing Lean On Me on this uh, children, you know, kids uh, version of The Voice. And I just thought, well, he's extraordinary, basically, for someone so young. So as well as producing him, I thought I ought to... Uh, take it more seriously than that so I took over his management and I still manage Liam and uh, from then until now we've done we've done Christmas singles we've done concerts at uh, Cliveden 
he sung with my Elton John tribute artist. In fact, that's what this Don't Let the Sun Go Down is all about, really, because we did this, um, it was only last year that he did this concert at Cliveden, which is a big country house in Berkshire. Mm -hmm. And my, my Elton John tribute artist uh, did a, a set there. And one of the songs he did was Don't Let the Sun Go Down. And Liam appeared singing the George Michael part that they do in the duet. Ah, brilliant. So following that, because he did such a good job, I thought, why don't we do a version of him singing the whole song? Solo, yeah. And, and so um, rather than use the uh, karaoke backing track that mm. actually Paul, Elton Paul, was, uh, was using, I thought, I've got to reproduce the track myself you know so i i just started working on um you know different instrumentation slightly different version although it's exactly the same tempo and it's exactly the same key mm. as elton's mm. uh and then at some point uh, uh liam came into this studio where i am now uh he sang it live and i gave him i don't often do this but at the end of it i gave him a round of applause <laughs> on my own Right. Because it was a brilliant vocal. It's pretty much the vocal that's on there. And I just thought it was a performance, you know. And, uh, yeah, it's 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 sort of similar to Elton's. It's similar to George Michael's. But obviously he's got his own voice and he did his own take on it. He did that ridiculously high voice at the end. But, um, yeah, I did backing vocals on it, my wife singing on it. Oh, right. got it. We got another singer on it, but I'm doing. We're doing all the backing vocals. How about that? And we're going. We'll be releasing it uh, probably in about a month's time, I would say. And yeah, it'd be interesting to see. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult when you do a cover version, especially uh, a cover version which you would normally do of a famous song. Otherwise, you wouldn't. No one would know what it was. But so obviously, people are very stuck in the, which is. You know, I mean, I was there when this was recorded. Don't let the sun go down. The original well, version I was of say, Yeah. So you know, I was well, well into the original. But um, I, I guess I do like, uh, you know, Liam's uh, take on it with the, you know, the voice that he uses. So well, anyway, it's it's people will enjoy it or not enjoy it or whatever they do. Obviously, it would be nice to hear what the Elton fans think of it. Absolutely. So, folks, get in touch. Let us know. Comment on the podcast. There's a little place where you can leave comments on the podcast. We very much welcome that as well. So please do get in touch. In the meantime, just to say then that a big selling point of this particular release, which you say is coming out in uh, in July, right, is yeah. that you're on it. You are actually backing vocals on it. I mean, Well, that's... Well, that's not, I mean, I've I'm, sung with Elton, I've sung with uh, Chris Rear. I, I, backing vocals is something I care a lot about. I did all the backing vocals on the first Chris Rear album and sitting at the mill with Gus, if there was ever a vocal harmony that I could do, I would, I would just be in there like a shot, you know. Wow. Well, see, I love doing it. And there I was thinking that rather than dressing up in a crocodile suit, what you were actually doing is uh, f flying around with bits of glitter. But in, in fact, you did also backing vocals for a number of very 
important songs. This is incredible. This is, for an, this is for another for another hour, for another show, I'm afraid, ladies and gentlemen. But listen, this is absolutely great. So you mentioned Cliveden earlier, of course, and I know that you're, you're good friends to this very day with the wonderful Clive Franks. He was over from New Zealand, I believe, recently, about a year ago, wasn't it? The summer of last year. And you went to Cliveden because I saw your pictures on the... Uh, of, oh, that. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love, you know, I, I belong to the club there. I go there, we were there today, and I go there twice a day, and... Um, it's an incredible place, really. You bump into the most extraordinary people. I met Paul McCartney there a few months ago. I met Rod Stewart there a little while ago. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, it's a it's a crazy place where everyone uh, you know can meet up. But I mainly go there for the spa club to go swimming and right. enjoying it. But it does have a great history, and it's literally across the river from where the Mill mm. Studio was. Yes. Um, so uh, it's only up the road. I can get there in six minutes from here. <laughs> so what, what? All these famous celebrities who go there. I mean, what are they? Go, are they going there for a spot of tennis, or what? What, draw, what draws them to this very auspicious home? Well, Paul was there this time because he was celebrating his uh, daughter's fiftieth birthday. Right, Stella, mm. and uh, you know, people who can afford it can book the whole place. So I suppose when you're that wealthy, instead of taking everyone to the local Chinese, <laughs> when you're a billionaire, you book a country house, you invite a couple of hundred people, mm. and uh, you have your party there. That's right. what you do. Yeah. So that's what uh, Paul was doing, and that's what a lot of people do. Obviously, they have weddings there and all sorts. And yeah, of course. Yeah, Michael Jackson... I think everyone, pretty much everyone who's in the public eye, whether they're rock stars or, um, you know, actors and actresses have been to Cliveden. It's quite famous, really. Yeah. So uh, I'm very privileged to be able to go there, to be honest. Yeah, so it's so close. And as you said, and it's got a beautiful panoramic view of the River Thames from there as well. Uh, it's absolutely amazing. Gorgeous, isn't it? Isn't it? Absolutely amazing. We're very lucky to go there and... Um, yeah. yeah, the view, the views to the river are incredible. It's it's all amazing. Yeah, indeed. So that was uh, earlier on Liam Price. We heard and um, thank you again to his mum for her initiative. And Definitely. indeed, you know, he was fifteen when you first heard about this fella. But now we're going to get even younger with this next performer. Ring, ring goes the telephone. You sit the
What an amazing track, ladies and gentlemen. A 14-year-old lady by the name of Jean-Marie graced our airwaves just now. Is this the next Adele? Jean-Marie, if you're listening to this program, please, please don't stop. Whatever you're doing, don't stop recording. This is great. Now, how did you find this gem, Stuart? Yes, I'm here. Um, it's again, her mother got in touch with me. And um, she's a very lovely lady, South African, actually. And, uh, yeah, she just sent me a couple of tracks of her daughter. And, again, a very similar thing to Liam, really. Just struck immediately with the quality and the, um, and the voice, really. But then, uh, yeah, and then they came, she came to the studio. I probably heard a few songs and maybe chose this one. Uh, and, uh, but she's an extraordinary girl. I mean, that's her playing piano. She's a great pianist, a mm. uh, great singer, as you can hear. And she wrote this song, wrote the words, wrote the lyrics. And, um, but also, we just got on great. I mean, how mad is that? That, I, that me, aged 128, <laughs> you know, could even have anything in common, let alone work with a 14-year-old is, is kind of mad, really. Anyway, the amazing thing is that... Uh, you know, age doesn't seem to matter so much these days and great working with her. We got on well. We're musically connected. You know, she's a great artist for the future. And uh, this is the first track we've done together. There'll be many more. And um, yeah, I'm very pleased that uh, you're able to play it, George. Yeah, and that a 128-year-old was able to work with a 14-year-old. Now tell me, exactly. <laughs> when you started off uh, uh, Epps uh, Records a couple of years ago, of course, you, you did so in the midst of the lockdown, the pandemic. Uh, but how do you work with your clients these days? Is it face-to-face -face or is it via the internet? How, how does it actually work? How do you piece together the song, the recording and, and everything and agree on what's going to be in it? Well, it's, it's definitely both. So sometimes... And, uh, and that's how it kind of started off initially, um, the big difference when the internet was invented, which sounds mad, but for me, it's not that long ago. Mm. So with this invention, you can now share music and create music with people the other side of the world, which we only used to dream about and sort of make jokes about how that would ever be possible. Yeah. But of course it is, and then we take it for granted now. So... Many, many artists now, especially unsigned artists, have studios at home. So rather than try and get them to fly over here, wherever they are, to go into Abbey Road, I say, right, look, you've got a studio at home, you're creating music at home, send me what you've got, let me listen to it, and let me see what I can do with it. Because, to be honest, it's very easy to record. It's not so easy to make a record, something that sounds like a professional piece of recording that's been mixed that's been you know had all this stuff that I've been learning over the last 50 years so I do a lot of that remixing adding to productions I also do whole productions just from very minimal recordings that uh, the artist might have put together might be just guitar and voice and piano and voice <clears throat> and then I add all the instrumentation and the production so I do a lot of that um, and I also, in this small studio that I have in Cookham, um, you know, work with people live in the studio, like with uh, Liam, like with Damien, 
uh, like with many artists and, and Jean-Marie, <clears throat> where they're actually, we're face to face, as you say, uh, in the traditional way. And um, to be honest, it's, it's, it's whatever is needed and whatever's necessary after the many years that I've been doing it, there's not much that I can't do really when it comes to uh, recording. Now, I want to just take you up on this point because I think it's a very interesting element that you've brought in here. As you know, during the pandemic, we've all had to start to basically telework or work remotely, as it's called. And uh, there's been a lot of sort of backlash from people saying, well, it's not the same when you're not in the office because you don't get the small talk, the water cooler moments. You don't get to go to conferences and, 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 mm -hmm. and meet people face to face and you lose the body language and all that. And. Um, and so there's 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 pros and cons there's, for, for people who like to work by themselves or feel independent. Of course, it's a doddle. They're happy not to have to get up and, and commute anywhere. But for other people, of course, it can be very inhibiting, particularly if they're creative or in the creative industry, such as music. Now, you're working with artists like this. Um, how how do they do, do they feel that they they're missing out if they're doing this all by the Internet, like, a bit like a correspondence course? Um, do, do you feel that there's anything sort of lacking in not being able to make that eye contact in the recording studio? Well, George, you've brought up a brilliant uh, question there, and, it, and, and it's a pleasure to be able to answer that, right? Because not many people even think about what you've just said. And I think about it, and of course I act within it, and so I'm very happy to explain it. So when, when I was at the Mill Studios or when I was at Wheeler End Studios or any of the traditional studios where you have these huge areas sometimes, massive control room, big studio areas with a glass in between. Mm. And the band or the artist is in that glass room and you're in the control room and that's how we used to create and that's how music was recorded in the old days, if you like. Mm. Now... The atmosphere that that used to create was just magical if it was obviously magic music being made. Mm. And I am very lucky, I'm very, you know, blessed to be able to say that I work with some incredible artists in that way. Elton John being one of them, maybe George Harrison, Bill Wyman, Chris Rear, <coughs> Led Zeppelin, The Firm, where the band is in the studio and a lot of these bands would be playing live, as it were, obviously. Uh, in Paul Rogers' case, he'd be singing live. And all that was necessary was to make sure that everything was working because you just knew that magic is being created in this in this studio. Yeah, so we're working in this, you know, amazingly magical environment. And all that was important is to capture it and hope that nothing breaks down but spin forward from analog to recording to digital recording to pre-production rooms, post-production rooms, and of course the internet, which made this vast uh, difference whereby, um, you know, you connect, connect with artists all over the world. Yeah. The, other major, the other major thing that happened was that equipment was available now to people's laptops, to people building their own home studios. Mm. So I always say this is a bit of a double-edged sword, really, because obviously it means that many more people can record at home that wouldn't normally have that opportunity. Yeah. Unfortunately, the, the downside is that they then are, are working generally on their own. 
so it's a very insular place mm. and i feel sorry sometimes for youngsters who you know they buy all the gear which actually isn't vastly expensive and then they sit there with maybe their oasis album next to them or their elton album or their whatever it is yeah and they think right i'm going to do this now and then suddenly they they probably find out actually it's not quite as easy as they thought because it isn't easy no. it doesn't matter what equipment you have um it still needs to be learned it still needs uh, experience and so i do feel sorry for today's artists in that respect because also they're now becoming engineers yeah, I was and say producers and mm. the artists as well they're not working with the same team uh, one thing i always say is that the best music i know was created by teamwork uh, that's not that's not even strictly true of just music. Obviously, a lot of uh, industries and a lot of things are created within teams. Mm. And, you know, the music that I know you love, George, and the music that I grew up and loved was created by more than one input, more, more than yep. one, in the words of the Trogs, uh, Reg Presley, mm. more than one mind on it. Yep. So, um <laughs> You know, so you've got bass players and keyboard players, everyone coming up with ideas and, uh, you know, and thrashing it out in the studio. And I don't like that. And I like that. And and that's the Beatles. And that's the Rolling Stones. And that's the Who. And um, all these amazing bands that you thought might disappear into the past, but they become even more relevant uh, in the in the present, you know. So, so... Yes, some artists can do it, but I think in history you can count those on your hands. Uh, the artists that have managed to be the singer, the songwriter, the producer, the engineer, you know, Stevie Wonder, Michael Jackson, and of course, you know, there are, there are modern equivalents. But I, I do think that, um, that there is something that's been lost. Definitely there's something been lost because there aren't so many bands now that, as there used to be. So... You know, there's more people working in this insular way. And like you say, with, with COVID, that was even more relevant or prevalent, whatever the word is, um, people working on their own. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my, my wife and I, we sort of laugh because we go for a walk around Cookham and we think there's, the streets seem to be empty. And we say, where is everyone? And my wife always says, well, they're on their computers. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's... Um, I mean, it depends on the on the on the talent of the artist, really, because one way or another, talent will come through. And I think Jean Marie is a good, and Liam are they're good examples of people that they just know they have this talent. They can't help themselves. One way or another, they've got something to say in their lyrics. They've got something to say that wants means they want to get out there and sing and they want to make it happen you know so yeah. one way or another that's why the music business continues music is still made new music is still made however it's made i mean you know i can talk about this for, for hours and years you you've got um simon cowell with um mm -hmm. you know his programs where they feature artists that have never done anything and suddenly they become super huge you know in a matter of weeks um so that encourages people at home to want to be artists and 
let's face it, it is a easier to make records, as I said, and to make recordings and everyone has a go. Were well, true, but of course, as you say, Simon Cowell and programmes like that, which excite people and uh, inspire them to do things for themselves, I think people need to take a step back and remember that actually those songs are a team effort as well. Because behind yeah. Simon Cowell, there is an army of people from Absolutely. marketing to production to you know Absolutely. public relations to legal, you name it. Mm. All of these yeah. things have got to be. I mean, we we all know artists like even poor Gilbert O'Sullivan, um, who 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 knows more about, about copyright and law than, than he would like to because of his own experiences back in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, but he, he's a good example uh, of somebody who, who was able to do a lot for himself. You know, he was able to be a multi-instrumentalist. In effect, uh, uh, he records his own, a lot of his own stuff. Uh, Mike Oldfield is another name who, who plays all, God knows what, everything from a banjo to, you know, a ukulele probably and everything in between. And he's got his own studio at home and he does a lot of this stuff uh, by himself. But you're right. Most of us need a team to make it a success. And look at Elton John. As you said, he has a team, to, which you know, it's all part of what we call the Elton John world. And that's the, that's a fact. That's not that's not manufactured. That's a reality. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, look, fantastic well, to talk to you about this. And and Jean Marie, I think she's got, she's going to be she's going to be big if she carries on doing this and working with a team. You know, you know, put you put your strength. Put yourself in your in in your strongest suit and let other people help carry you forward. That is the way to success in my traditional book. Yes. Okay. Right. I, I agree. I agree. I was just going to say though that Elton is a is a very good example of that because uh, obviously also as um, Elton fans know that Elton originally, you know, before he met Bernie, which is when I met Elton before he met Bernie, mm. was writing his own lyrics. Yep. And uh, he's, he's someone who, in order to get where he wanted to be in his head, which was super famous and extremely successful, was prepared to bring other people in and to do whatever it takes to make it happen. Now, that's not always the case, I find, with today's youngsters, unfortunately. Mm. They seem to have this pressure where they feel that they have to do everything. Yeah. They've got to be the singer, the songwriter, the guitarist, the, the pianist, the, they're, they're every, the engineer, the producer. And Elton is a very good example of someone who really wasn't, you know, he didn't even want to be a singer, let's face it, when he started. He was only interested really in writing songs. Mm. And I don't even know whether even Elton fans know that. But uh, it was only when it was suggested to Elton that, because I was one of the people that was trying to sell his songs to other artists and they, you know, they weren't always interested. And so it was put to Elton, do you know what, if you want to get your songs out there, you'll have to sing them yourself. <laughs> and, uh, and which seems mad now, but he, th he said, oh, well, all right, I'll have a go. And let's face it, as we know, Elton never had a go at anything. If he's going to do something, he's going to do it 100%. Yeah. And that's how he was with the um, singing. Mm. And then when it was put to him that he might have to go on stage, you know, which he didn't want to do either, he thought, well, if I'm going to do it, I've got to be amazing at it. And, and he's such a great example for youngsters. Um, mm. that It's not just the talent. It's not just the God-given talent. It's the mental ability to see yourself doing what you want to do and how to get there, you know, with the passion and the determination and everything else. 
it's uh, wonderful at this juncture which where we're closing out our program that we've come kind of 360 degrees around back to Elton from the artist, the young artist of the future, back to Elton and his uh, way of doing things. As you said, yeah. quite rightly, um, he surrounded himself with very successful and talented people. All I, what I will say is he had a really good knack at picking good people to work with him. I mean, that also needs to be acknowledged, I think. But... Um, I think it's wonderful that you've chosen a song because I asked you what is your favourite Elton John song now um, you've chosen a song which not a lot of people would have I, I want to hear from you why you chose this song and I can say it's 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 got a lovely title because um, it's it sounds odd to have a duet for one what what's behind this song why do you like it so much uh, well it's a very selfish reason because it's the only song I've uh co-produced with Elton I wish there were I wish there were more so I'll probably get 10 pence for you playing it no I mean I you know it's a crazy question I mean Elton gets asked it you know mm. what's your favorite song and all that mm. I mean you know there's just too many I suppose your song although it's a corny one to say your song has so much meaning for for me and obviously for Elton fans. I mean, when I first met Elton, it wasn't when I first met him because he hadn't written that song yet, but probably I was only about 16 or 17 when he sat down at the piano and played that. Mm. And then he went in the the, demo, the studio at DJ and recorded the demo of your song, uh, along with 60 Years On, uh, the songs that were going on that, that second Elton album. Yeah. So So they don't just mean so much in terms of they're beautiful songs, but they mean so much of my life, you know, yeah. at that age, you know, and, and they, we've lived with those songs all these years. So to choose any of those is, is kind of almost, you know, a bit corny for me. Whereas Duets for One, he came in the studio to, um, at the mill, um, to record, yeah, he also did a duet with uh, Chris Rear, which I put together. I put him mm. together with Chris. Okay. I mean, he hadn't re hadn't really met Chris, and that's another story actually, which I can Please. go on about maybe another time. Yeah. Well, I can tell you now. Yeah, if you tell want. us now. Tell us now. Yeah, we've got time. All right, I will tell you now, because uh, I was working with Chris Rear, and uh, we were working on his uh, his album, and Steve Brown had been on the phone. Uh, we were chatting away. I said, "What's going on?" He said, "Oh, we're." We're editing together um, uh, a duets a duets album, and I said, "Oh yeah." He said, "Well, it's only you know we're not recording any new ones. It's um, it's just putting together a compilation of the duets that he's done." And I just was saying that you know I'm working with Chris, and I'm, I don't know whether it was me or him, and it, I probably was me. I said, "Wow, that would be something if they did a duet." Now I probably said that semi-jokingly, and. Uh, but I also said it to Chris, who is also one of these people that um, has got to where he's got by passion, by determination, by, you know, taking every opportunity. So when I said to him, um, you know, I, I mentioned to Steve Brown about a duet with you, mm. blow me down. The next morning I come into the studio and, and Chris goes, listen to this. And he's only written a duet for him and Elton. And, and it was called If I Was You and You Were Me. Yeah, great song. And he, he sang the whole song, obviously doing both parts, and then said that, you know, that would be Elton's part, this would be my part. And I actually had to say, well, I said, it's, it's, it's 
brilliant. You know, it is great. Mm. I promise you this is no word of a lie. I rang Steve Brown that evening, played it to him down the phone. He said, brilliant. He played it to Elton down the phone. Elton said, we're going to do it. We're going to record it. So um, I don't know if it's too, an exaggeration to say that this actually also started Elton off in a bit of a, a direction of thinking, well, maybe I ought to do some more duets. Mm. And next minute he's doing a duet with everyone, you know, Little Richard and yep. Leonard Cohen and all these people. So um, I can't, I'll be honest, at this moment, I can't remember whether we did the Chris Rear duet um, at the mill first, but I also remember he said, um, I want to book the studio. I mean, he hardly ever used to ring me, but he called me to ask me to book the studio. This was when Jimmy Page owned it, um, because he's mm. he's doing a song with um, the lyricist from Squeeze. Yeah. What do you can you remember his name? Oh, I gosh. can't remember. I can only remember Jules Holland at this moment, but the yeah, I can't, uh, it's not good. I can't remember his name. Anyway, so and he books the band. He books the band. This is actually quite a good story. It's turning into because um, he books the band. I can't even remember who the band were now. But I, I, you know, I'm in the studio. El Elton hadn't arrived yet. I start setting up all the gear. The the guy who turned up, who we can't remember his name, mm -hmm. and uh, I think I might have seen the lyric, you know. But basically, at some point, Elton comes in, and he says, "How's it going?" I said, "Well, great. You know, I got this band here, and uh, we're all set up. We got the sound. You know, the the guy you wrote is writing the song is here." He said, "Oh, I better go and write the song then." I said. Oh, I said, what? He said, oh, I haven't written it yet. I said, I, could, I thought he was joking, but he wasn't. So he, he goes in the studio, he's got the lyric in front of him, and he writes this song called Duets for One. And, uh, you know, we've all heard this about Elton, that he has this incredibly talent for writing songs, you know, just like that. Given the, the lyric, he can write a song just like that. I mean, maybe he had it in his head. Maybe he'd seen the lyric. I don't know. But basically, we put this song down. Uh, it was a really, you know, we liked the song, Duets mm. for One. Very unusual. Mm. There isn't anyone else singing it. That's why it's Duets for One. And um, and then I co-produced it. I put backing vocals on it. Uh, I think I used Beverly Skeet or someone or other. Mm -hmm. and uh, And that's why I chose it. I think the name you're looking for, or I'm looking for, is Paul yeah, Carrick. Is it Paul Carrick? No, no, Paul Carrick was the singer. He was a singer. Yeah, uh, I Gl can't remember. Glenn, Glenn Tilbrook. Glenn, it's Glenn Tilbrook. Oh, it's, it's he Glenn. wrote. Yeah, he wrote the lyrics. He must have met Elton somewhere, uh, and because uh, I'd never met Glenn before, but he wrote the lyric, and I promise you that's true. Whether he had it in his head or not, he sat at the piano, beautiful Beckstein piano at the mill, had the lyric in front of him and then completed the song and then we, we recorded it. You know, it's Crazy. amazing It's amazing. we mentioned Glenn Tilbrook and Squeeze and all the rest of it that this comes with because um, just before we were getting ready for tonight's programme, I actually had a little thought. I, 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 I thought, I'm not going to ask you to answer this question because uh, we, we need to really sit down and think this one through, but I was thinking to myself, what artists should Elton John record with? And one of the people that I was thinking of was actually... Paul Carrick. Wow. 
He, he oh, came to mind. Isn't that crazy? It's just one of those things. I mean, this is a live program, and we put it together. There's no, there's no funny yeah. business. It just came to me before the show, and here we are mentioning Paul Carrick only an hour, an hour into this program later. But how wonderful is that? I mean, a great vocalist, a ve you know, very talented uh, performer, great, great uh, singer. It would be great if they would to sit down and record together. Honestly, it would. Um, yes, I have one better than that, though. Go on. Because when I had the good fortune to work with um, Robbie Williams, mm -hmm. uh, Robbie was totally enamoured with Elton. I mean, I know Elton helped him uh, when he had a drug problem. But he would often, while we were working together, say, oh, what did Elton used to do in this situation? And, you know, what did you do here? And he, was, he just wanted to hear about stories about Elton. And so at one point I said, look, did you want to have a word with him? And he said, well, yeah, of course I would. So I did actually get Elton on the phone at Rocket. And next minute they were both talking. And I don't know, he, he said, do you want to borrow my house? Maybe he said, you can have my house. I don't know. But... Um, <laughs> I just thought, because w working with Robbie, he's such a great lyricist, you know, he, he might not necessarily be thought of as the best singer in the world uh, or songwriter, but no, I mean, as a lyricist, he comes up with all these great ideas. Mm. So I actually thought there was a team, you know, Robbie and uh, writing the words and Elton uh, singing the songs, they would have been a great team. But for one reason or another, they, they sort of fell out you know, it's personalities, isn't it? You know, personalities didn't work in the end. Um, but I thought that would have been a good team. Well, let's hope but, they forgive and forget and move on because yeah, you, know, they you might only get one life. Future. You only get one life, so let's all just get on yeah. together. We, we, they, we, we, we're, you know, we're old enough. We don't have to be capricious. Whatever the whoever's to blame, whatever the reason, I think we yeah. can come together. And music is such a uniting force. So I, I very Absolutely, much hope yeah. that Robbie and Elton patch up whatever differences there are. Now we mentioned yeah. earlier on, uh, and we spoke quite a bit of course about uh, the, the lovely um, Jean Marie. Um, one thing I, I should also tell everyone is that I won't say what the original title of the song was, but literally just before we came on air. You, you told me that the title was now being changed to, and I didn't say what it was called in the end, Laura's Song, isn't it? Laura's Song. Yeah, his, that's his, right, his yeah. Absolutely beautiful song. Um, yeah. And look, this is what live is all about. You know, we, we make it up as we go along. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, well, it's been an absolute pleasure, honour and joy to speak to you again, uh, Stuart Epps. You've been a great sport on Radio Elton John and Saturday Night's All Right for podcasting. I hope you've had fun. Absolutely, a pleasure to do this. And we're going to play out with that wonderful song, which of course oh, was yeah. on the uh, on the duets album, nineteen ninety three. That was released. And, was it? Uh, yeah, all those, all those. Yeah, thirty. I can't believe it's thirty years ago. Oh my god, it's depressing. That's uh, you don't really want to know this bit. No. Okay, but lovely song, duets for one, Elton John. Look at you. Could I have been so foolish and so green? Face the smile at every passing scene. No more singing duets for one. That's Elton John there and duet for one. Well, that's a guaranteed 10 pence of royalties there going straight to the pocket of Stuart. I'll be round in the morning, mate. Okay, I'll bring I'll bring the 10p with me. We hope you've enjoyed tonight's programme and indeed that you'll join us again at the same time next month. That's right, every last Saturday of the month. That's when we have our next edition of 
Saturday nights all right for podcasting on Radio Elton John. And if you're inspired by what you heard today or you have a story that comes with it, maybe you were at one of these concerts that was mentioned there by uh, Stuart Epps, our guest of honour today on the programme, please do get in touch with us. You know our email address, radio at eltonjohn.world. See you next time.